According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to wrap up these events today. Uh, we did the six hours of the first six events of the first three hours. We did the last three hours, and now we need to conclude with the events attending Jesus' death. Point four in the outline: events attending Jesus' death. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, so we can uh, humble ourselves and get situated and be prepared for study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, and we recognize that this is our grace provision today. We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. Father, we just thank you that once again, we can open our Bibles, you can teach us, we can learn, we can grow. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Moving on then, recall what happened during the last three hours. Nope. There we go. Point three. Last three hours on the cross. Darkness descended upon all the land from noon to 3 p.m. From noon to 3 p.m. And uh, I mentioned uh, the possibility that there would be secular authors in different places that would have accounts of this darkness or unexpected uh, eclipses and so forth. I've gotten some emails since then and haven't had a chance to look at those yet. But in any event... We have uh, the issue of the darkness from noon to 3 p.m. And it does say over all the land. All right. Not just the city, the land. And so at the very least, it's a regional thing that relates to the land of Israel. And uh, whether or not there are records uh, among the Aztecs and the Incas and the Romans and the other folks, uh, you can accept those or reject those depending on how credible you find those particular records. Our Bible says there was darkness over all the land. Secondly, we looked at the recitation from Psalm 22. The recitation from Psalm 22, which was more than just simply a lament over people treating you badly. It starts off with that. It starts off with, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it builds from that and it goes to describe future anticipation. It describes the future worship. It says, I will pay my vows. I will uh, declare your name among my brethren. There is much to uh, rejoice within the context of Psalm 22, as well as, of course, the lamentation that takes place there. I do highlight the fact, I think it is tremendously significant, that he says, Eli, Eli, which is Hebrew for my God, my God. But the Aramaic speakers, uh, the crowd standing by, thinks he's calling for Elijah. And they confuse the Hebrew, Eli, Eli, with with a call for Elijah. And uh, you have those verses in Matthew 27, verses 47 and 49. Some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is crying for Elijah. Let us see if, uh, in verse 49, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Well, he wasn't calling for Elijah at all. He was reciting the, uh, the text, the Hebrew text of Psalm 22. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani is, is word for word out of the Hebrew text there. And uh, so that's a point of study right there. If you ever get involved in some of the debate that takes place, at exactly how lost was 
Hebrew as a language among the, the general population. It was maintained as a priestly language. It was maintained among the scribes and the Pharisees, the scholars that, that continue to study Hebrew. But in most cases, the general population, uh, they, they spoke Aramaic. All right, And that's why the Targums were written as commentaries on the, uh, on the Hebrew text of the Old Testament and so forth. I suspect that most of the synagogue teaching that took place was done in Aramaic rather than in Hebrew. In any event, uh, clearly you've got the ignorant crowds oblivious to what he was saying. And uh, the testimony of Scripture is, uh, is unanimous in that regard. The sour wine was also a fulfillment of Scripture. And as we're running out of time, we, we highlighted the connection of hyssop. Hyssop that was used here, the hyssop branch that was used. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink. And uh, when you go to the John record in John 19 verses 28 and 29, we learn that it's a hyssop branch that they used to reach up to where Jesus could drink it. And the connection with the hyssop is uh, remarkable because that's what was used in the Passover event back in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 22. So all of these details come together in powerful ways, ways that maybe we wouldn't have thought to connect them quite in that way. The fact that they used a hyssop branch to smear the blood on their doorpost and on their lintel and the fact that they used a hyssop branch to reach the sour wine up uh, to our Lord on the cross is a connection I find fascinating, but maybe one that we would not have met, uh, we would not have written if we would have been forging a, a testament to try to, you know, falsely prove that that Jesus was the Christ. It's kind of remarkable how uh, the Bible is accused of that more often than not. All right, and then finally, point D, the last issue of the uh, last three hours on the cross. Having successfully poured out his soul, Jesus can now yield up his spirit. And the testimony that comes in Matthew 27, verse 50, uh, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Uh, John 19:30, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Likewise, Mark 15:37, Luke 23:46. In all of these accounts, Jesus Christ is um, causing his uh, soul spirit to depart, and therefore. Uh, the result of which is, of course, the physical body that dies. Remember, don't get, don't get confused when the doctors have their debates, you know, whether it's brain death or heart death or, you know, does the heart stop beating or what is it that they use when they pronounce somebody clinically dead? Well, the Bible says physical death is what happens when the soul isn't in there anymore. <laughs> All right. It came about as her soul was departing for she died. We read about the death of Rachel there in, uh, in Genesis. So, uh, I think the expressions, I'm, I'm headed for Mark 15 here just to double check that the expressions are very similar in Mark and in Luke. Mark 15:37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Okay, so that does not mention spirit, but breathed his last. And then Luke 23:46. Luke 23:46. says, if I can get there, well, my pages are flipping slow this morning. Their spirit, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All right, so having said this, he breathed his last. Now, I made some comments as we were running out of time, and it sparked some questions. Folks, I guess, I don't know, 
I didn't think it was that controversial, but maybe um, in the fact that we know that Jesus died physically, but we know that prior to that, Jesus died spiritually. And we'll understand the difference between spiritual death and physical death. And I'll make sure we're clear on that before we move on to the events attending Jesus's physical death. All right. What happens after he physically dies when the veil is rent and they pull him down and they bury him. And these are the things that take place. The women that are standing by. Uh, there's other things that take place that are events attending Jesus physical death. But let's back up a little bit and once again remind ourselves about his spiritual death. And we want to understand those because they're critical. As in Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. And this is something that I think the answers in Genesis people confuse. This is something I think that other folks confuse when they fail to understand the distinctions between spiritual death and physical death. All right. The, the work of Christ on the cross was his spiritual death that produced for us, that satisfied the Father, that redeemed us, you understand. When Adam and Eve died, on the day they ate that fruit, they died spiritually. It was 930 years later that Adam died physically. All right, But he died spiritually on that very day that he ate that fruit. As in Adam, all die. That's spiritual death. But in Christ... All are made alive. That's how we understand it's spiritual life. When you receive Zoe life in Christ, you're made alive. No unbeliever has Zoe life. They have physical life. But Zoe life is the eternal life that comes by, by faith in Christ. All right, so that's critical that we understand that. It wasn't his death. When he says it is finished, it's finished, and he hasn't physically died yet. He has only spiritually died. Now, what I said last week that was a little bit more controversial was how long did he say stay spiritually dead? All right? Because I believe when he said it is finished, he was spiritually alive to say it is finished. That when he delivered up his spirit to the Father, he was spiritually alive again to deliver up his spirit to the Father. That the spiritual death only lasted so long as the darkness lasted, <coughs> excuse me, for those three hours of darkness on the cross. And that when the darkness was lifted, Jesus Christ took his life back up again. He was spiritually alive when he said it is finished. He was spiritually alive when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he physically died. All right. And is, any, any questions on that? Does that seem puzzling? Yes, ma'am. And God himself didn't look upon him. That's right. God himself didn't look upon him. Correct. Receiving our sin and uh, accepting God's wrath poured out upon that sin. That's right. Yep. So darkness was to uh, prevent uh, any human observation. Uh, I think even angelic observation. And God himself did not observe that, that darkness cast upon him. That's right. Well then, let's uh, talk about the veil of the temple as we get into Matthew 27. Now, these events uh, are recorded in verses 51 through 56. Point four, events attending Jesus' death, uh, takes us in Matthew 27 from verse 51 down through verse 56. So, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Uh, Matthew records this as taking place contemporary with Jesus' physical death. Uh, immediately following verse 50, where Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
Uh, so, uh, again, verse 51, uh, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, this is not going to be found in Mark, Luke, or John, so pay attention to it here in Matthew. But then coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And so, remember, Matthew's written to a Jewish audience, and Matthew's often actually written in a, in a rather Jewish style, where you get a big picture, and then he backs up and gives some of the details, all right? And so, at, at first glance, it appears that the tombs are open, and the resurrection there took place on that Friday. But in verse 53, we realize that this didn't take place until after he himself had been raised. So, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. So... Um, Related to that. So we, we want to make sure we're, the sequence is, is understandable because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first resurrection. These guys are not raised until after he is raised in, uh, in that respect. And I think that's why verse 53 makes that very clear. The earthquake was on Friday, but the resurrection and, and exodus of these, of these folks does not take place until after he himself is raised. We'll talk about that as well. Verse 54, now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, all right, so we're no longer under darkness. The darkness was only for those three hours. After those three hours were done, then it you know, became daylight again at three in the afternoon. Uh, when he saw the things that were happening, he became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. Oh, still is the Son of God, all right, but, you know, what does he know? Um, but the first testimony to, uh, to Christ's deity from the cross is this testimony right here. Then 55 and 56. Many women uh, were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was. Now we have a list. And this is where it's, I think, useful to take this list and the list in the uh, parallel gospel accounts and put them in columns and then start to reconcile, start to synthesize, harmonize the different lists. So in this list, we have Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So as I count that, I count three women in verse 56. Is that how you look at that? I count three women there. Two of them are named Mary, and one of them is not given a name, uh, but she is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And uh, three distinct women. There's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And we've got to figure out who they are. And uh, I believe that's James the Less, all right, one of Jesus' disciples, and Joseph. But that gets debated. We'll talk about that, the debate a little bit as we work our way through. Now, uh, so three women. Do you see the mother of our Savior there in verse 56? I don't see the mother of our Savior there in verse 56. The only people who do, we know from the Gospel of John that she's there because Jesus entrusts her to John's care. He says, woman, behold your son. He says, uh, you know, son, you know, behold your mother. And, and so Mary is entrusted to uh, John's care in the Gospel of John. And we'll see that here shortly. Uh, but we don't see uh, Mary, the virgin mother of the humanity of our Savior. We don't see her in that verse unless uh, we try to force her to be the mother of James and Joseph, which some people do. He did have a brother named James. He had a brother named Joseph. He also had a brother named Simon. And he had, a, you know, there were four brothers and, and a couple of sisters there. Um, and some folks think that the reference to Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, is the, uh, the virgin mother of the humanity of our Savior. I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you that's not the case when we see 
these other accounts. All right, so that's Matthew's record. Um, let's start to put the, the subpoints up. And, and I apologize, my A disappeared. So for whatever reason, it's just late to work. Yeah. All right, it showed up after B and C. All right. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom as a great earthquake struck. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom as a great earthquake struck. A lot of people make a big deal out of the top to bottom direction. Um, And I think it is significant, the fact that God made clear in the Scripture that that was the direction that it was rent. I think it does make the point that it was God's work, not man's work, that reconciliation is always God coming to us and uh, and, uh, reconciling us to himself. And so the work of redemption is such that it has to start from God's end to reach us. We could never reach him if we were trying through our own effort to try to reconcile ourselves to God. So the top-down motion of the of the rent uh, temple, uh, the rent veil, is quite interesting. We don't get any significance here in these texts, though. We don't get uh, whether Matthew 27 or Mark 15 or Luke 23. All three of the Synoptic Gospels mention it, but they don't give you the theology or the significance for it. You have to go to Hebrews to get that. All right. Why do you think it's important that the veil is now rent? Why do you think it's important that uh, and, and the fact that it is totally in half from top to bottom means you can't hang it anymore? You've got you to go in and, and sew that back up again and put that back up again. Okay. And I suspect that's what the high priest was doing um, on that Saturday. <laughs> All right. I suspect he was breaking the Sabbath uh, in there with his cohorts to uh, to try to stitch that veil back together again. All right, that uh, they became Sabbath breakers in order to try to cover their tracks and hide from uh, other folks that uh, they didn't want in there seeing that. But what what was exposed then when that veil was rent? You ever think about that? What was inside that holy of holies? What was supposed to be inside that Holy of Holies? There was supposed to be an Ark of the Covenant inside that Holy of Holies. There was supposed to be, uh, you know, where the high priest would go in once a year and smear the, smear the blood on the mercy seat. All right, well, hadn't been able to do that since the exile. The, the, the new temple, the, the temple of, of the post-exile temple, the second temple it's called, uh, didn't have a, an Ark of the Covenant. Okay? The Ark, we never see the Ark again after the destruction of Jerusalem in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, if you believe Indiana Jones, then, you know, (laughs) you got an explanation for it. But there is no Ark of the Covenant. What's in there is an empty room. You know, when when Pompey, when the Romans invaded, he went in there to see what the big deal was. Empty room, nothing in there. And, you know, when you show the emptiness for what it is, I think there's there's a message there. In any event, the book of Hebrews, let's, let's take a peek at that real quick. I don't want to take a ton of time on it because I do intend to finish this topic before uh, before I cut you loose at 11 o'clock since my Ukrainian trip is going to mean we'll have a three-week break here. All right, Hebrews chapter 10. We have a new and living way. Hebrews 10.19. We have a new and living way. And what a blessing. You recognize that in those sacrifices, the chapter starts off early in Hebrews 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, can never by the same sacrifices 
which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. In those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All they could do was cover. They covered sin. That's what kafar atonement is, a covering. And then God would pass over. And he would pass over because he was looking forward to the work of Christ. So now here's Christ, and he has a once and for all sacrifice. And uh, so uh, Jesus says, I've come to do your will. And uh, in verse 9, behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. This isn't going to be done year after year after year after year. This is once and for all. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all, brother, believe it. Once for all, sinner, receive it, right? It's a good hymn. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. What a delight. You and I in the church age can rejoice for the once and for all sacrifice. Get down to verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Now we get the significance for why that veil was rent in two and you don't ever have to sew it back up again. Don't ever try to create a, a, a picture of, a, of an earthly holy place that was rent in two and should have stayed rent in two in between 33 and 70 when the temple was destroyed anyway right but the new veil is what his flesh his earthly ministry what he came here to do and since we have a great priest over the house of god what a blessing see in that temple the high priest went in all by himself came back out when he was done he was a mediator between God and man. But guess what? In Christ, we're all within. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We're all in there. He's not in there interceding on our behalf. I mean, he, he does intercede on our behalf. But what I'm talking about is our priesthood is different than their priesthood. It's not just the high priest by his lonesome. It's all of us together in a priesthood. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. We don't have to have that labor outside. We have our own sprinkling, our own first John 1 9, our own cleansing. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So there is a tremendous significance to that veil being rent in two. All right. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And this is a good reminder for any test you're going through. A great reminder for your next pity party when you think everything's a train wreck and you can't do anything right and you're just a failure in the Christian way of life. Stop and say, well, wait a minute. I'm sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. I have confidence to enter into the holy place. And that's where I stand. Positionally, that's where I stand. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Where does this mutual stimulation take place? It's in the exercise of the priesthood. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near.
All right, so there's our significance. The veil is rent in two, and we are now assembled as a priesthood for the mutual stimulation, the mutual ox goad in the Christian way of life. We can appreciate that. All right, point B then. The tombs were opened on Friday, but the dead were not raised and did not exit their tombs until Sunday. Until Sunday. These were not Lazarustic resuscitations. I made that word up, by the way. I'm very proud of that word. I'm hoping Lazarustic. All right. That's an adjective, that imitation of Lazarus. These are not Lazarustic resuscitations but actual first fruits resurrection. See, when Lazarus was raised, he was restored to a mortality. He was restored to physical life, but still in a mortality subject to future ongoing physical deaths. The three people in the Old Testament were raised from the dead as well. Elijah raised one. Elisha raised two. But they were just resuscitated to physical mortality again. The vulnerable, they were still aging. They were still going to get old. They were still going to die at a future point of time. Lazarus likewise. And so Elijah raised one. Elisha raised two. Double portion of Elijah's spirit. That's three Old Testament saints restored to physical life. Jesus raised three. Okay? Matching what the Old Testament prophets had done. But whether it was the widow's son or, or uh, Jairus' daughter or Lazarus, the three that Jesus restored to physical life. Likewise, I think uh, Eutychus, that the Paul brought back to physical life again, Right? I believe they were resuscitated back to a physical mortality uh, subject to a later death. That was not the case here. I believe in this case that, uh, that this was an actual resurrection and appearance. There seems to be an emphasis in verse 53 about appeared, appeared to many. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And the appearance, like the appearances of Christ, are significant. They're not just a, hey, look at me, all right? They're not just, uh, you know, post a YouTube video and say, you know, everybody look at me kind of a thing. No, these were significant appearances where testimony to those appearances was part of the ongoing ministry assignment. When Jesus appeared to the apostles, he was commissioning them as apostles. When he appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road, he was commissioning him as an apostle. So the appearance actually is a significant event. And we'll, we'll discuss that when we talk about his 40 days of resurrection ministry. Now, they disappear after this. They're not seen again in the Gospel of Matthew. They're not seen at all in Mark, Luke, or John. So they appeared to many. And then what? Where did they go? What did they do? All right. Well, they disappeared. I don't think they stuck around very long. Long enough, however, to leave plenty of eyewitnesses. Plenty of testimony to Jesus and his resurrection. And then I believe he took them with him to heaven, the first fruits. Again, the concept of first fruits was always waved before the Father. And uh, when we try to calculate how many times Jesus ascended, uh, we come up with a minimum of two and possibly even three if these guys get a personal ascension by Jesus Christ transporting them to the third heaven. In any event, um, they weren't around after this. They weren't around during the 40 days of ministry. They weren't around after the, the coming of Pentecost. They didn't cross into the church age. If they are truly raised in a resurrection body, then uh, they would still be walking this planet today. All right. So I believe that, that he took them home. Friends of the groom, by the way, that have to be on hand when 
the groom himself uh, is going to bring the bride to the father. So uh, it's uh, compatible with other messages to think that this first fruits resurrection would be presently uh, in heaven as well. All right, because most of the Old Testament saints, by the way, don't get raised until the second advent. They don't get raised until we come back to start the millennium. So, uh, you know, Moses and David and Daniel and all those Old Testament believers, Job, they're, they're still dead without their resurrection bodies. See, just with a robe, uh, interim body that uh, they can sleep in. But these guys are resurrected. I, I find that remarkable. All right. More than just simply his resurrection. You know, if, if, if uh, in, in how many, we don't know. It just says some, many. How many is many? Yeah, it's not a few. It's more than a few to be called many. And I also, my guess, by the way, my opinion, is that they were recently deceased. I don't believe, I mean, if, if, if some old guys, I mean, if David was raised or if, uh, you know, somebody from earlier centuries was raised, well, then who would know? You know, hey, I'm King David. Hey, I'm Solomon. Well, nobody living would remember them or what they looked like. So I think these were recently deceased believers that still had living family members on hand where they could go back home and say hi. <laughs> and uh, by the way, Christ was crucified and has risen from the dead. And I have risen from the dead. Different aspects there. All right. You know, if, if my mother came back to class this morning, that would get my attention. <laughs> right? If mom walked in here, that would get my attention. And I expect these people here, yeah, got their attention too. All right, then the centurion. Remarkably enough, the centurion offered a true testimony while the mob engaged in outward ceremony. See, they're not done. <laughs> they're not done. Just because he's dead, they're not done. They still have more ceremony to engage in. This, this show is not over. Okay? When you talk about all the ritual that has to take place, all the drama that has to unfold. So the centurion offered a true testimony while the mob engaged in an outward ceremony. And Luke 23 really highlights this. So let's, let's grab these. You got, we've already read Matthew 27:54. We've got Mark 15:39, which will be uh, very parallel to that, the, the testimony of the centurion. Um, the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Luke 23, 47. When the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds, this is what I'm talking about. This is what happens in liturgical um, context today. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, big time. All right? It's all about the, the uh, procedures, the process, the show, the right bells at the right time, the right incense at the right time, the right chants at the right time, the right candles at the right time. See, their show is not over. Yes, he's dead, but their show is not over. So in the crowds who came together for this spectacle, gives you the idea why they were there, 
when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. Beating their breasts. So it's a long procession back into town. Long procession back into town. You know, the, the, what do they call it? The Via Dolorosa or whatever, the way of suffering. And they're walking along in this big procession. Oh, beating their breasts. Oh, sad. Boo hoo hoo. Well, they were just mocking, not too, you know, just an hour ago. You know, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah rescues him. Or, or uh, you know, mocking him, saying, come down, come down. If, if, if he delights in you, then he can rescue you. And all they were mocking that they were, uh, they were undertaking. You were going to destroy the temple in three days and raise it up again. You can't even save yourself. So now, what's, the, what's up with all this beating their breasts? Why bother? Why bother? You know, why not just go, you know, go home? No, the show is critical. The beating the breast is the outward demonstration. Uh, it is the, uh, you know, they were outward, they had beautiful tombs. Inwardly, they were full of dead man's bones. It's, you know, the inner heart reality was ugly as anything. But they still had to keep up appearances. So much so that oftentimes they would, they would even hire professional mourners if they felt that they really, really wanted to express additional wailing beyond what their lung capacity could wail, then they would hire additional wailers. There were professional wailers that made good money doing this. They could go to funerals five, six, seven days a week, and uh, yeah, maybe not on Sabbath, but they could they could make good money as professional wailers, boo-hooing and crying and and all this stuff. So the mob is engaged in the outward ceremony. I find that interesting. <laughs> and then all his acquaintances and the, role, and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. So there's the testimony there. All right. Finally then, let's talk about these women. Point D. Many women, many women are described as followers and servers of Jesus. Many women, followers and servers of Jesus. All right? And for this, we need to compare uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're unnamed in Luke. Unnamed in Luke, but we do have the names that are given in Matthew, Mark, and John. We've already seen Matthew. Recall the names in Matthew were Mary Magdalene, one of the few people in the Bible with a last name, <laughs> okay, Pontius Pilate, Mary Magdalene, Judas Iscariot. There aren't that many with last names. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, those three women. When we go over to Mark 15, verses 40 and 41, There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. So there's a name. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of J&J. I accept it's the same J&J, that James and Joseph is the same as James and Joseph. It's, there is a spelling difference between Joseph and Joseph. But I believe it's the same name. It's just one that has a, just a different ending on the Greek spelling. Joseph's not a Greek name anyway. Joseph's a Hebrew name, right? The son of, uh, of uh, 
of uh, Jacob there named Joseph. Likewise, James is not a Greek name. James is a Hebrew name. It's the Old Testament, Jacob. So, uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of J and J, and we don't have mention of the mother of the sons of Zebedee, but that's who it is. We have her name listed here. Her name is Salome, or Salome. I've heard it pronounced different ways. Salome. In Luke, they're not named. In Luke, they're not named. But again, that's three women in Matthew, three women in Mark, unnamed in Luke, plural. And then in John's record, this one's a little bit different. And this one is either three women or four women. And boy, are there some arguments among the uh, journals. John 19, verses 25 through 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. Okay. Well, I don't think she's mentioned in in, uh, Matthew or Mark because I don't accept her as the mother of James and Joseph. But let's keep going. His mother and then his mother's sister. Hmm. Did did Mary had a sister? And uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas. And Mary Magdalene. All right. So the Mary who's mentioned first in Matthew and Mark is actually mentioned last in John. Mary Magdalene goes from first to last. Now where the debate comes in is, is Mary the wife of Clopas his mother's sister? In other words, should you connect those? Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas. In other words, is that woman too? His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. And which makes Mary Magdalene woman number three. Or are there four women mentioned there? His mother, his mother's sister, is the second woman. And then Mary, the wife of Clopas, who's not named. And then Mary, the wife of Clopas, is the third woman. And then Mary Magdalene is the fourth woman. You see why there could be confusion? It's just whether his mother's sister is left unnamed or not or whether his mother's sister is Mary of Clopas. All right. Beyond the fact that we got too many Marys. <laughs> okay? How many Marys do we have here? Because there's Mary, the mother of J&J, Mary Magdalene, Mary, uh, the virgin mother of the humanity of our Lord, who was no longer virgin by this time because she had six more kids. Uh, but Mary, the former virgin. Okay? Um, Anyway, so you chart these out, you start crossing them off, you start mixing and matching, you start seeing how that they, they synchronize. I, I believe that Mary, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, is Salome, is Mary's sister, his mother's sister, okay, Jesus' aunt. So when she comes and tries to arrange the seating assignments, you know, grant that in the kingdom my, my sons may sit on your right and on your left, that, uh, yes, that was their mother, uh, you know, getting in. But it was also his aunt making them cousins. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were cousins of Jesus because their mother, Salome, was the mother of, was the sister of the Virgin Mary, the former Virgin Mary. Okay? I'm not going Roman Catholic. She's not virgin today. So, 
Otherwise, the only thing you can then guess is if, if Mary of Clopas is um, his mother's sister, well, that means he got two daughters in the same family, both named Mary, right? And uh, Mary of Clopas is, uh, you know, do you name both your daughters Mary? Or do you name one Mary and one Martha? I mean, what do you do? <laughs> okay. Name one Salome. All right, so my conclusion. Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that Mary of Clopas, by the way, is uh, the, the mother of James and Joseph. Clopas is the husband there, the father of James and jo- Joseph. This is James the Less, the other, the other James disciple. That's not James of Zebedee. James the Less, he's called. Does that mean he's younger? Does that mean he's shorter? Probably shorter. Um, regardless, James the Less and Joseph. Okay. That's uh, Mary of Clophus. He's also called uh, Alpheus, I think, in one of the other gospel accounts when you look at the listing of the twelve apostles. So Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that makes sense. Remember, we discussed... Why was it that John seemed to have access to the high priest's house? Why is it that when they took Jesus into Annas and Caiaphas' place for his trial, that Peter was stuck outside, but John was known to the doorkeeper? John was known to the household servants of the high priest. John had an entrance to the household of the high priest. John was able to go out and get Peter and bring him into the household of the high priest. That makes sense if we identify his mother here, Salome, if we identify her as kinsman with Mary, we identify both, both of them then with kinsmen with Zacharias and Elizabeth, we understand that they have these priestly connections anyway. All right. Remember, John the Baptist was a cousin of Mary's, and he was the, the officiating priest in the temple when, when uh, his wife was impregnated there. Remember that? This is like seven years ago when we were in the... <laughs> The early part of the, the life of Christ ministry. All right. And so there we have it. All right. Uh, that wraps up this event. We're actually a little bit early. Do we have any questions or anything? Yes, sir? No, I believe that, that no, the, the, they didn't come out until Sunday. I believe the centurion on that Friday was commenting on Jesus. Um, on the, on the darkness being dispelled and, and Jesus looking up to heaven and committing His Spirit. Right. Jesus committing His Spirit. Yep. Well, our next event, event 39, is the burial and uh, so forth. We'll, we'll actually see the breaking of the legs of the other thieves and the piercing of the, with, a, with a spear and, uh, and so forth. But that's event number 39 and event 40 in our harmony. Um, and so that will wait until we're back from Ukraine um, next week and the week after. Did you decide if you're going to have prayer meetings? You have them here? Okay. 10 o'clock here. Okay. Good to know. Pray hard. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. I believe so, yes. It says coming into the holy city after his resurrection is, is the testimony in 
Matthew 27:53. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. No, no, there's no kind of secular testimony that agrees with that. In fact, there's not even another book of the Bible that agrees with that. Matthew's the only account that records that, that particular detail. Right. Yep, most people have it. It is fascinating, though, isn't it? Yes, sir. No. Paul talks about all the people that Jesus appeared to. He appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve and to more than 500 at one time. But those were appearances of Jesus that Paul references in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, nobody else speaks about this company of first fruits that are raised with him. And they appear to many in the city of Jerusalem. Yep, it's only recorded in verses 52 and 53 of Matthew 27. All right, Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for... Uh, this day, we thank you for the new uh, sound equipment, Father, and we, we rejoice over how faithful you are to make make provision, Father. You are the God of all grace, and we identify with your grace, and we give you the praise and glory for all that you do. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.